Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. I joke that this book has the easiest thesis, and of course I'm a historian, so thesis is the argument we make from evidence, and this one has the easiest thesis I've ever written, and it is simply that biblical womanhood, this modern understanding that women are to, uh, are divinely ordained to be under the authority of men, that this is not biblical. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm really excited to have Beth Allison Barr on the show today. Um, I, we were just basically recording an episode before we even hit record, <laughs> kind of talking through how helpful the book has been. But she's written the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. It, it's blown my mind time and time again. But yeah, welcome to the show. And I'm really excited to talk with you today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. You mentioned in your book, there's a portion of your story that you share where you talk about being a professor, you've got a, a PhD from a big research university, but you weren't allowed to teach a high school Sunday school class. And it, it sounds crazy when you hear it like that, but that's a situation a lot of women find themselves in within the church. They're highly gifted, highly educated in a lot of cases and extremely limited in what they can do. It feels very much like a man's religion. C- can you talk a little bit about your your kind of background and how this kind of played out in your personal journey uh, of being a woman within the church. So I did grow up Southern Baptist, but I always, when I think back now on it, the Southern Baptist church that I began attending when I was a small child with my parents, when they moved to Texas, wasn't the same type of Southern Baptist church as it became about 10 years later. And that's because I was, it's really in the 80s and the 90s that this complementarianism began to pick up and this teaching that that male headship is uh, divinely ordained and that it needs to be 
implemented better. That's really what complementarianism mm. helps do is that this needs to be a structure that is implemented and followed within the church. So when I first started at the church, there were lots of women who taught adult Sunday school classes with men. Mm. Women were, I didn't see them behind the pulpit. I actually talk about that, but the women were visible. But by the time I became a later teenager and especially moving into college, that was really when it picked up. I women are less visible in those areas and that women, they're not teaching the classes. In fact, I remember at the church I grew up in, there was a woman who had been a Sunday school teacher of an adult class for a long time. And I remember she started having to defend it later on as a teenager. And I remember this because she explained it. She said, the reason that I can do this is because my husband gave me permission to to do this. So I'm covered by my husband, so to speak. And I remember always finding that interesting, the way that she, she put that. And so it began to signal to me that women teaching men was not something that was normative in the church. And growing up, I hardly ever saw women preaching in the pulpit. That was not a space that I ever saw women in. And so it is when you think about women involved in the church and women who do have a great deal of teaching gifts, et cetera, that simply seeing that they are not allowed, not you know, in these spaces has a tremendous impact on women psychologically. And in fact, I'll say that this is something that I struggled with because even before I met my future husband, I felt God calling me into academia. And I felt that this was a very strong call. I didn't exactly know what to do, but I felt being called to grad school. And then when I married my husband, and of course, he's a great man. He, when we met and he said he wanted to be a pastor and I said, I want to go to grad school. And I was like, I'm not going to not go to grad school. And he was like, that's okay. We can figure it out. And we did. In fact, when I applied to grad school, we found the places that were the top schools for me to apply to that also had seminary somewhere in the vicinity that he could go to. And so he really let me, he was like, it's more important for you to go to the top school that you can get into. And then I can find a seminary around. Little did we know that would mean we would be at Chapel Hill and Southeastern, but that's the way it worked out. So this tension was always in my life, I think is what I was saying. And it became more pronounced the older I got because complementarianism began to take more and more of a hold in churches. And so I began to find that I would have to explain why I was teaching. I would have to explain why it was okay for me to be in the classroom and having to come up you know, with reasons. You know, why is it okay that I'm doing this? And this became especially pronounced when I was an early teacher after finishing my PhD. And I was also a young, I wasn't really young, but I was a mom with small kids mm. that way. I had small kids and I, the reaction students had to me when they saw my children with me or when they saw me pregnant was really striking, especially some of our more conservative ones. And that was when I began to get questions, a lot of questions from some of them. Is it okay for you to do this? And even some of the female students who would come to my class, come to my office hours and say, is it okay? okay for women to do this. Mm. And so it tells us these messages that we internalized that women, that women have to seek special permission for them to have this teaching ability and that they 
and that it always should be considered within the framework of male authority, that we never could have that authority on our own. And you mentioned Gothard in your book mm-hmm. and going to one of his conferences, which um, I, I guess was surprising me. I know that he reached beyond independent Baptist world. He was his own thing. Like he had, a, he had a, quite a few yes. followers. Long-standing marriages, like 30, 40 years, 50 years are breaking up. Why? Because these marriages failed the chief test in a marriage. Were you heavily influenced by Gothard, your family, or was it just something that you recall, like just some of his teaching drifting into? I think I was the most influenced by it. And Mm -hmm. that was because I think I was at a really sort of precarious state. And I blurred the details on this a little bit because I don't want people to be able to pinpoint the years on this. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you that it, I didn't know anything at all about who Gothard was Mm -hmm. when I was introduced. I was just invited to this conference. I do know that he had, that people had begun using his literature in the church I was in at the time and began passing it out. And there was a lot of Bible study literature that was being encouraged for people to take home with. And in fact, I wish I still had it. I ended up with one of his books for the basic life principal institutes. And I remember reading, I read that whole thing and I still have a very, it really made an impression upon me. Like James Dobson, they made a, I can remember entire pages of that. And the pictures, I remember the, it showing how women are supposed to dress. I had never seen anything like that before on the emphasis and people who've looked at it know this, this emphasis that nothing's, that everything's only supposed to bring attention to their faces and not any other parts of their bodies. It was, I I remember all of those. I also remember his umbrella of protection that women are supposed to stay underneath. And so that was something too. So it hit me at a very formative time. And it was also a time when I was trying to figure out who I was. And I really began to believe that regardless of what else God was calling me to, that in order to be a good Christian woman, I had to be married. I had to be in this relationship where I was under the authority of my husband. And this was something that, that I think was was very dangerous for me to believe that because it has this idea that what you, that your primary goal is to get married to a Christian and then everything else can fall into place. So instead of doing what God is calling you to do first, you find somebody to get married, check that box, and then you can go on under the authority of your husband. Hmm. So that's was what I was in. And Gothard, I think, A lot of people went to that conference that I knew who I regarded as godly people and people who very much knew their Bibles and did a lot of Bible study. And so that also made an impression upon me that this seemed to be a godly thing to do. And of course, at the time, this is the Internet was here. Of course, I'm not that old, but it wasn't something that people used in the same ways that we use today. And it wasn't something. So how was I supposed to find out that Bill Gothard had all of these problems? problems before and that there had been these accusations made against him. I mean, that wasn't anything that I would have had that information that I could have found very quickly. So it never even occurred to me that there could be something inherently dangerous in Mm -hmm. what he was uh, preaching. So it 
it didn't have, it moved through my family a little bit. My parents used some of the material, but it didn't stick for very long. My parents are, and in fact, I think they began noticing that it had a, it was having more of an impact on me and they actually began trying to push me away from it. Hmm. But unfortunately, when as we all know, when you are a of a certain age, you often become even more adamant. And I'm obviously yeah. a very strongly opinionated person. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so I think that also I became convinced yeah, um, that, that this is what I was supposed to be as a woman. Yeah. No, I resonate with that personality type of once I'm convinced of something, I can't. It's really hard to shake. Like, And, and I think that's in a lot of ways, a good thing. Once you feel like you see something clearly, it only becomes a bad thing if you're wrong, if you're- Right. And I think part of it too with me, and I see this, I remember somebody asked me a question. They were like, why do women stay in these types of situations? Why do they stay? Mm -hmm. And on the outside looking in, it's like crazy. It's like, why do you do this to yourself? And I- I know why women do it because it's the same reason I did it. And it's because we believe that this is what we are called to do. We believe this is the primary calling. It be our identity as Christian women is wrapped up in being a wife and a mother. Mm -hmm. And if you're, and so our identity is invested in that role. And also with that being under the authority of our husband, this is, part of our identity as being a Christian woman. And so if you, for women to step out of it, they, it, they have to reject Mm -hmm. their identity. And and that's a really hard thing to do. So I think that's part of it. Right. Yeah. But that was actually my next question was, I was, Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, it's fine. I I was going to ask though, because I, because on the, on a very surface level, you can understand this mindset from the male perspective, how do guys get together and devise something like this? It's a Stepford wives thing, right? Like you, it's okay. This perfectly makes sense for someone's going to do your dishes and take care of the kids. And you don't have to do anything in that regard. That makes sense. What's crazy to me is when I see people and and I could probably list off a bunch of names, but like when I see bloggers, women writing this females teaching this, yeah. Then it, then for me, it's, it's very confusing because for me, I'm like, if I had been, if I, when you think this way, like I was like, man, if I'd been a woman within the church, I would have left the church the minute I had the opportunity. And, but then you do, you flip it and you start understanding, like when this is being taught as like, not only it's your calling as a woman, but like, this is God's design for the church, for your family, for the home. You hit this in your book a lot, like to question it makes you feel like you're questioning all orthodox theology and religious kind of affiliation. It's really shocking, but it's something that even I mentioned to you, even up till recently, I would have said, I'm like a very loose complementarian or something along those lines, all all the different variations of saying, just not the bad stuff, like anything good I hold to. But even like several years ago, I was like, why is it that every religious denomination has a lot of restrictions for women and not for men? Like I would talk about you go to the Middle East, women are covered from head to toe, guys are in t-shirts and jeans and it's patriarchy. doesn't make sense, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the it, historical construction of patriarchy. Yeah. It, it's crazy. So I guess rolling back into the into the topic of patriarchy, because this is where you do well to address this early in the book, like this idea of, hey, this isn't an attack on the church or orthodoxy. Right. Like this is specifically patriarchy. But yeah, for most people listening they probably don't see those as two different things. Yeah. So I know this is a huge question, but what is the kind of Orthodox Christian teaching about women versus the patriarchy? Like how has that inserted itself into the Christian faith? 
Yes, no, that is a huge question. And it you, you is- You should write a book on that, that question. I, I should maybe <laughs> uh, about what patriarchy is. So I'll preface this by saying I was listening to a podcast just the other day. It's a podcast I'd never listened to before. I was listening to it specifically because they had an episode on complementarianism and mm. they were complementarians. And I was like, you know what? I need to listen and see how they talk about this because I haven't listened to them in a while. Complementarian voices talking about this. So I need to listen- to what they say. And it, it just blew me away with how much they're understanding the reason, and they were women, the reason you mm. follow complementarianism, the reason you follow male headship is because this is what the Bible says. And over again, that came out, this is what the Bible says. And of course, for me as a historian, and also as somebody who has come to understand that this isn't actually what the Bible says, this is Christians having read the patriarchal structure of the world in which we live back into the biblical text. And really what I think moved me along my journey with this was when I realized that every sort of almost generation, every sort of epoch in Christian history has a different reason for why patriarchy should exist, for why mm -hmm. women can't lead, which is what helped me unravel it? Because if, if it's God's truth, if it's written into the stars, shouldn't it be the same reason why women are not supposed to preach, teach, and lead? If we think about salvation, and I, I'm not quite at your question yet, so I'll get to it. But if we think about salvation, one of the miraculous things about the Bible is that despite all of the centuries of people translating it and people doing all sorts of things with it, the big story of Jesus coming and dying for us and the salvation provided that never gets messed up. Oh, mostly doesn't get messed up. It gets messed up by a few folk, but mostly it doesn't get messed up. It's with all of these smaller pieces that we see significant variation. And one of them, of course, is what to do with women and women in the church. And so I think one, one question that someone along the way here has asked me, they said, when was there a time in Christian history where women could always preach, teach, and lead? And my response to that is there's never been a time in Christian history where women could always preach, teach, and lead in the same ways as men. And the reason for that has nothing to do with Christianity. It has to do with this historical structure of patriarchy, which Christians don't like to talk about. One of the reasons Christians don't like to talk about it is because we associate it with the 1960s and 70s feminist movement. Mm -hmm. And so a a lot of women are like, oh, no, I'm not a feminist. I'm not a feminist at all. I'm not going to talk about the existence of patriarchy. The problem is that patriarchy did not, discussions of patriarchy did not begin in the 60s and 70s. Women throughout history from the ancient church all the way to the modern times have recognized these, system, these systems that put women in positions of power under men and that lead women, which I think your audience is interested in, put make women more vulnerable, consistently make women more vulnerable, that this system is outside the structure of the Bible. So your question is, when did it filter into Orthodox teachings? From the very beginning, mm. I think we can see this in many ways, the New Testament. I love the way Lucy Pepiot, and she's also building on Scott McKnight and some other great New Testament theologians, the way that they, if when you actually look at the New Testament and you look at the gospel accounts and even the Old Testament too, what we see is a revolution in how women are regarded, how women are treated, the attention paid to women, and not just being paid to women as property 
and as bearers of children, but attention to women as individuals, as people who come before God on their own. It's remarkable. It is a remarkable thing that we see in the Bible. But instead of emphasizing that, what Christians have, what we always, what we do instead is we emphasize the fact that women, even despite the remarkable nature of Jesus, that women in the ancient society were always in positions under the authority of men. How are you going to pastor people? You can't even, you can't even keep your wife in control. It's preaching time, friend. She tells you what she's going to put on. Don't you quit listening at me. I know the qualifications of a bishop. It's preaching time. I've watched, hey, I've watched these preachers do pretty good till you get right there. Even the pulpit's got a little quiet on me out here. And with the very early church, we see Paul, Romans 16, we see all of these women in leadership positions. It's very clear. I think there's 10, 11 women mentioned in Romans 16. Seven of them are specifically identified in ministry positions as deacon, as apostle, as teacher, and a co-worker. And we also know house church leaders, just like men. Paul makes no distinction between their role and Mm -hmm. the male roles. It's very obvious. It's very clear. But So we see women serving in these roles, but very quickly thereafter, we begin to see early church fathers coming up with reasons why women can't be in these roles and why women shouldn't be in these roles. So we begin to see teachings emerge, and mostly those teachings are fixated on the female body. And it says that women's bodies, and this is not a Christian idea, this is this is a very human idea that there is something wrong that women are um, deformed men is essentially what, you know, it's this ancient idea that women's bodies are wrong and therefore women are really intellectually inferior uh, to men. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons why Peter calls women the weaker sex. And this is something that also throws the household code that we find in first Peter, which seems to be the harshest one because it calls women the weaker sex. And some people, it's amazing how people have interpreted this. Some people, it's like they look at it and they say, oh, God has ordained women to be the weaker sex. You're like, that's not what Peter's saying. What he's saying there is that women are co-heirs with men and men need to realize that in the world in which we live, women are subordinated, that women are the most vulnerable. God always looks out for the vulnerable, the wives, the the women, the widows, the children. And so it's no surprise that Peter does the same. He says, y'all need to remember that they are the weaker sex, that they are the most disadvantaged and you need to treat them as co-heirs with you. They are equal in the sight of God. But instead of focusing on that from the very beginning, what Christians, what we focus on is that women are weaker, that women Mm. are in subordinate roles, and we argue that women should be. And that is what is, I think, where we have missed the point completely of what God is trying to do. So does that, I was a little rambling there. No, that's- I'll let you refocus me. No, I'm, I, it it speaks how much research you've done to be able to say it that shortly, (laughs) because if I would have gone through it, it would have been a lot longer. (laughs) But no, that's something you mentioned the word like revolution and- yeah, it's something you, you bring up in the book. I actually thought about this two days ago, and then I was going back to your book. I was like, oh, I thought about it because she had written that exact same thing. But you said we're supposed to be so different from the world, but we treat women just like everyone else does. Yes. And it, it really is. That was what was such a jarring thing for me was we talk so much about being countercultural, and we talk so much about being different than the world, but we 
we subjugate women the same exact way, exactly. you know, and it really is. It's something where I see it in, in the writing of a lot of people. And, and that's been one of the hardest things about this is there's a lot of, there's a lot of theologians and authors that I love and that I've learned tons from, and that have been foundational to a lot of my growth and education. And then I'm reading through some of their writing on women or on th- different situations within the church. And it's like, man, why do you have to say something like that? Like, why do you have to say something so dumb, right. you know, on top of all this? And it really does. It's difficult seeing names like John Piper, who in has had a huge influence on a lot of my, mm-hmm. my Christian journey. And then I read some of the stuff on women and then I'm speaking with abuse victims. I'm like, right. his teaching, if pastors are applying this, this is leading to some I'm very- I'm sure you're aware of his yeah. very famous, when was that? 2006, 2008. Yeah. They've taken it yeah, down. During his smack God for the, website. For the yeah, where he yeah. said, yeah. And it, it, it's, it's terrific. Just, a woman's submission to her husband is rooted in the word of God, calling her to be, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, submissive to him, which means she always has a higher allegiance, namely to Christ. And therefore Christ's word governs her life. And Christ has many words besides be submissive. Be submissive is not an absolute because her Lord has other things to tell her so that if the husband tells her something that contradicts what the Lord tells her, then she's got a crisis there of to whom do I submit now? And clearly she submits to Jesus above the Lord, above above her husband. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season and she endures perhaps being smacked one night and then she seeks help from the church. Every time I deal with somebody in this, I find the ultimate solution under God in the church. In other words, this man should be disciplined. This man should be disciplined. She should have a safe place in a body of Christ where she goes and then the people in the church deal with him. She can't deal with him by herself. So the short answer, I think, is the church is really crucial here to step in, be her strength, say to this man, you can't do this. You cannot do this. That's not what we allow. That's not what Christ calls you to be. So I can't go into all the details, but I would say, I hope, I would say to a woman, come to a church that you feel safe in, tell them the case, let the leaders step in and help you navigate the difficulties here. It's, yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's horrific. It's, and it's one of those things where I think just that alone, I think that stops a lot of people from diving into this because if it's like the Ravi thing, if Ravi falls, like he was the reason that I believed in God or our faith is built on some guy's teaching. And I think that stops the conversation. But the other thing that does that, that this was the thing where it blew up my brain. I had to set your book down and get out my Bible and then put it next to it and read it again (laughs) was like, even into the translators of the Bible, like complementarianism seeps into the way that we, the way that we choose which words we were going to use that when you talk about in Ephesians five, when it talks about wives, submit yourselves to your husband. I never, I don't think I ever read the verse preceding that. Right. But it, 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 maybe I had read it separately, so, but never had I heard it start there and then go into the rest of that passage. And it changes everything about it. Can I jump in there for just sure, a second yeah. on that? Because I think, I, I 
think that part, that chapter has gotten so much attention. And in fact, I predict that when I start getting the negative, right now I'm in the honeymoon period where the people who want to read the book are reading the book and the people who wanted advanced copies of it are reading it. But soon it's going to be getting in the hands of the people who see me as a threat because I am and are going to start responding. So I suspect that my discussion of that chapter is going to get a huge amount of pushback. Hmm. And one of the, I'm one of the reasons is because it's so critical to what they are arguing. And one of the things, and and for those of you who don't know off the top of your head, it's Ephesians 5, 21. And often we start our discussions of male-female roles with the household codes in 522, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands um, as to the Lord. I think that one. But right above it in 521, it says, submit to each other. And then 522, it says wives submit to their husbands. Um, And then husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. That throughout most of our modern Bibles separate those two verses. And there are some ancient reasons. There are some manuscript reasons for people, for them doing this. It seems possible that is that wives submit is a separate sentence from the one above, but from, and so that is an argument that many people have made. Oh, you're pulling it up for us. Thank you so you much. Go. Yes, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's some people argue that because it's a separate sentence, that it moves into a separate thought. And that is completely missing the point. It doesn't actually matter if 22 is the same sentence as 21 or not, because that whole, this whole passage is talking about how we are to relate to one another in essentially submission to one another, that we are not to be lording it over each other. We're not to be Roman law allowed wives, allowed husbands, the power of life and death over their wives. And Paul says, no, You are to submit to one another, which means you should love your wives as Christ loves the church. It's dramatically different. So really, this whole passage has to be read through this lens of Paul telling us that we are to relate to each other really as equals, as co-heirs, and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we all submit to one another. And it's just absolutely revolutionary. But most of our modern Bibles separate those verses, especially ones with complementarian agendas, because otherwise it undermines what they are trying to argue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I read that, because yeah, I always started in 22, wives, submit to and husbands, but verse 21 or 20 and 21, um, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, like submit like it's using the same exact verbiage for each other yes. but this little editor's headline here that they inserted helps push that same. and that was one of the most like you said it's one of the biggest threats to that idea because yeah. when you read it in that context and then when you get a little bit deeper and this was because this pushed me out of your book and just like looking through this passage again i'm was, so glad i'm glad it pushed <laughs> which you is to probably the Bible. a good thing yeah right? Uh, but when it's when it talks about husbands loving your wives as your own bodies, like that whips you right back to Genesis three, where Adam says, "Your flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone." Yes. Which I had always heard interpreted as, "Okay, you come out of my flesh." Like I'm made in God's image. Women are made out of man's. They're like a photocopy. They're taken from the rib. Like all those kind of th- that kind of verbiage. Mm-hmm. But like it's not restoring them back to the curse, which is where we usually go to, which is your husband will rule over you. It takes you back before the fall to God's plan, which is 
you're back to being of one flesh. And that's such a beautiful version of this passage as opposed to being this authoritarian hierarchy. hierarchy. Yes. and Uh, Yeah, no, it's funny to me how often modern Christians, complementarians, we focus on Ephesians 5, we focus on 1 Corinthians um, 11.3 about headship, we focus on the creation order, but we don't talk a lot about 1 Corinthians 7. And as a medieval historian, this always strikes me because 1 Corinthians 7 is probably one of the hottest Paul chapters talked about um, mm. by medieval uh, theologians, and it's because it's what they call the conjugal debt. Right. And it's really interesting. And in fact, some scholars have argued that this created more equality in uh, medieval marriages. Now, I'm not arguing patriarchy doesn't exist in the medieval world. Let me just put that out there because it did. But this conjugal debt, because what it says, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is that husbands' bodies belong to their wives in the same way that wives' bodies belong to their husbands. This is a clear statement that it doesn't matter what Roman law says. It doesn't matter what you are of one flesh and Mm. your bodies, nobody has more power over the other person's body that you both owe Mm -hmm. to each other. You are to be one together. And there is no room for hierarchy in that. It is, why do we let 1 Corinthians 11.3 completely sidetrack us from 1 Corinthians 7? Right. And, and that's what I, one of the things I'm trying to draw attention to in the book is that we have chose particular passage passages that we then interpret in particular ways that egalitarians are accused of cherry picking all the time. And it just blows my mind because I'm like, what have complementarians been doing? I mean, they choose five or six verses, take them completely out of their historical context and mm-hmm. read the entire Bible through them. Yeah, and, and it ignores passages like 1 Corinthians 7. And that criticism is mind blowing to me because like I said, I, even up until like through the beginning of this year, I would have said at least complementarian, I would have agreed with that. And where again, same thing with trying to separate from being like, okay, separating, okay, any good things that I've heard from say a Piper or from a, which I still, uh, what formative to me, leaving the IFB and becoming like, actually getting into my Bible was Mark Driscoll. I don't go promoting Mark Driscoll, but I can accept God used very broken sticks to draw straight lines. That's, I can accept that and also say extremely wrong and abusive in so many ways. It's amazing. A whole world filled with guys who want to be on a team, go to a war, defeat an enemy, and save a princess. That's the story of this book. But what's mind-blowing to me about that criticism about cherry-picking is reading through your book and through Amy Bird's book, like I was reading stuff that was revolutionary to me, going to the passage that was read, reading the passage from beginning to end so I couldn't, so I could see if there was a cherry-picked portion and right. when you read the passage in its entirety in its normal flow, it's the most natural, res- like it's the most natural takeaway from the passage. If you take away the complementarian lens and just read the passage for itself, it is extremely revolutionary. Like right. reading through, we just pulled up the passage. If you take away that little editor's wives, you know, and, wives husbands. and husbands, that whole passage takes on an entirely new life and meaning. And it's revolutionary, not just to our current church culture, like it's just to human culture in general. Like it reads like a-, a- So no, I think you're exactly right. And one of the things that I think modern Protestants, we just don't know is that these 
versifications and these um, divisions in the text, this is all new stuff yeah. versus we can start tracing the evolution of versification and chapters in the medieval Bibles. And this is all organizational structures. Mm-hmm. And really it began because medieval priests, they needed to separate out the text to read with the liturgicals or following mm-hmm. the liturgical year. And so they often actually would take out the sections and they would create that they would have these biblical texts in the order that they would read them through the liturgical year. And so in some ways, this helped this organization pattern. And we have become so accustomed to it in our modern Bibles that we just don't really think about the fact that it changes the way we read the text. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe I became really accustomed to this because when I started off as a medieval historian, the text that I worked on with my languages was reading the Bible because I knew the Bible, I knew the passages. And so I started reading the Vulgate, the Latin Bible. I started also reading, I still have my German Bible because it was very helpful because that's how I helped me learn languages. And then I started reading Middle English Bibles and Middle English Bibles are amazing. That's where I I grew up memorizing verses and I mm-hmm. can do versification, but I've been reading medieval Bibles for so long. I actually forget my verses. That's one of the things I always have to remind myself what the verses are because the medieval Bibles have none of that. There's no of those passage. It's all runs together. And it's amazing how differently you read the text when you remove those modern, those artificial structures. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing that I want people, whether or not they agree with me or not, I hope maybe they approach the way they read their Bible more with uh, more wisdom, paying attention to the ways that we have changed how people read it simply by trying to organize it. Mm. Uh, So at the very least, I think that's a valuable lesson for us all to learn. Yeah. It's a very helpful organizational tool and for reference, it's, it's great. But yeah, when you start realizing how much it does change when, especially when you're doing a devotional, like a a devotional reading verse one through five, and then you're like, oh, six and seven totally change how you view one through five. Or yep. and even within the independent Baptist world, there was a strong the King James onlyism was yeah. very we, strong. We lived in that world too for a while. So right. and, and so even that it was like even the even a colon, they could preach a whole sermon on why there's a dash there. Yeah. And it's, it's incredible. Such a radically strange way to read the text versus <laughs> reading it in its natural flow. Cause there is, there's so many passages just from your book that I'm like opening my Bible and going like, that's the first time I've ever read that verse before those other six. And it changes the entire, it's like any other book. You wouldn't, you would never take another book. Like I wouldn't take your book and take like chapter four and then paragraph two, three, and four and be like, here, read this all. Like it's a bizarre way of doing it. I'm curious to talk about one thing that, that I'm still just pondering a lot and you're here, so I can ask you about it. I was reading yes, you the book can. and you talk a little bit about the idea of inerrancy. And mm-hmm. that was the part of the book where I was like, clutch my chest. Okay. What I are know. we going to talk about? I know. Um, and again, just reading what you had to say, I get where you're coming from, I think as far as it goes, but I also like, you're much smarter than me. So I was like reading through, <laughs> I was reading through your book and I was like, trying to understand kind of your position on it. So yeah. you talk about the idea of how the doctrine of inerrancy, that that was essential to pushing this idea, like this it idea is. of how women are to be mm-hmm. subordinate and things like that. So I hear as someone who's grown up in church and heard inerrancy preached from King James only is saying that's the King James Bible to the right. reform tradition saying, talking about that, the importance of the doctrine of inerrancy. And I still think 
very important doctrine, but I'm curious when you're, when you talk about the doctrine of inerrancy being tied to this viewpoint, uh, what exactly are you trying to communicate and how does that functionally play out? So let's first talk about what inerrancy is. Hmm. And I think probably most people listening will have heard this term. It's a very loaded term. It's often used as a litmus test for orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. So people will accuse you of not believing the Bible, of not being an inerrantist. And in fact, you often will see, like I'm on Twitter all the time. And so I often will see people start off Twitter threads by saying, look, I'm an inerrantist. I believe in inerrancy. And then they'll start talking. So it's like a way that you defend, you say, I'm faithful. I'm orthodox. Yeah. I'm a Christian. Don't worry. Yeah. You should definitely not be on Twitter when this book hits the mainstream shelves, just so you know, just take a oh, break. <laughs> I've already had, yeah, I know. My my plan is I'm going to head off to England on a research trip. A very <laughs> good so, plan. So yeah, I'm trying really hard. I'm hoping COVID lets me do that <laughs> so I can run off to the medieval archives and be, be away from it all. So we'll see what happens. But no, I'm expecting a battering. So anyway, but inerrancy, the problem with, so inerrancy has become linked with believing the Bible which is one of the main points I argue in my book about how the subjugation of women became gospel truth. The problem, though, is that inerrancy has never been just about believing the Bible. And this is also, as a medieval historian, this is something that really irks me because modern Protestants, especially inerrantists, we have this belief that for a thousand years from essentially the death of Augustine, who I think actually most modern Protestants would actually, if they really understood some of the things Augustine believed, they would be like, oh my gosh, (laughs) we just misunderstand so much. But they really think that really from the time, from the death of Augustine until Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses, that most people were not Christian, that most people did not believe in the Bible. It's, It's just mind boggling to me that they actually think that. And I think a lot of this is because of how we understand inerrancy. And medieval people did not inerrancy was not a concept to them. They believed the Bible fully. They believed the story of Jesus fully. They believed all the words of the Bible, but it didn't bother them if you quoted things, if they paraphrased a lot, Mm. or if stories got me, that didn't challenge their faith at all because they weren't tied to this literal text in the way that we are. They memorized the Bible. It flowed through their flowed through their lives. It flowed through their speech, but it it was embodied, if I can Mm. use that, I think more. Whereas today, modern Protestants, we have it tied to this text. And so we have to carry that text around with us. And I think that's important. And I love being able to have the Bible. But at the same time, what we have to understand is that the Bible is translated. That text we carry around is something that was translated by humans, by people, And that English is a really poor language to translate Hebrew and Arabic and Greek into. And so our modern English translations are never going to get at really what those biblical languages are saying. We can get close and we can try, but we have to make a lot of inferences. And as I said, the miraculous thing about the Bible is that the story of Jesus, regardless of the translation, the story of Jesus, the story of God reaching down to humanity and saving us, that is always there. The miraculous nature of the Bible, none of that changes, Hmm. but translations do change 
you know, what I call the little stories of the Bible. Mm. And so when we think about inerrancy, inerrancy argues that if you believe, you have to believe in the plain and literal application of scripture and understanding of scripture. The problem is that plain and literal reading is something that was constructed in the early 20th century by a group of theologians and scholars at Princeton Theological Seminary, which actually was a new one for me. I really thought inerrancy was a Baptist thing. So I was a little surprised that it was Presbyterian, but nonetheless, but it was born within a certain group of scholars. And what their argument was with inerrancy is that you believe the Bible the way they think you should believe the Bible. This is how they interpret the Bible. This is the plain and literal reading of the Bible. And if you don't believe it this way, then you don't believe the Bible. They were really, the introduction of inerrancy was the introduction of a litmus test that you have to believe. It's not instead of, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he died for your sins, which really is the only litmus test for Christianity. If we really think about it is what do we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us? But instead we have tied it to believing how the Bible, the reading of the Bible as developed in the 20th century for this plain and literal interpretation that comes from a particular group of people. Mm. So I would argue that inerrancy is not really about believing the Bible. Inerrancy, the way we interpret today, is about believing the Bible the way a group of men in the early 20th century told us we should read the Bible. Mm. And of course, this is tied you know, to things of creationism and all of this sort of stuff comes out of it. So this is why if you don't believe in the literal creation story, and I always tell people, I think people would be surprised about how really traditional I am and how really I totally believe the Bible. I fu- fully believe the Bible. So I think people would be surprised, but this reading of inerrancy says, if you don't believe in this literal young earth creationism, which is such a modern, nobody believed this before, you know, very modern times. It's crazy how modern this is. And they say, now, if you don't believe that, that means you don't believe the Bible. Mm. And that's not trusting the Bible. That's not reading the Bible. That is a modern imposition that we, a litmus test that we have put to exclude some people from the faith and really also to, it gives us more power and more authority when we say we're the ones who believe, we're the ones, it almost smacks of Gnosticism, this idea that you have Mm. this secret knowledge and understanding of the Bible that nobody else has, and that gives you power above them. It's funny how the church keeps reviving the same old heresies over and over again. Mm. So that, I think, inerrancy is not about believing the Bible. I think inerrancy is about this modern understanding that the Bible has to be read this one way. Yeah. So if you say inerrancy is about believing the Bible, I'm an errantist. If mm. you say believing the Bible is reading it the way that the 20th century fundamental movement says you have to read it, then I'm not. Right. So I think that's, I really would like people to hear that, to realize that inerrancy is something that we created, and it really was created to define who gets to be Christian in the 20th century to control churches and seminaries, Mm. which is really what happened in the 1970s with the conservative resurgence, where they were trying to get control of seminaries and churches so that they could control what Christians were taught to believe. So it sounds like it's basically a 
like infallibility is probably a better word than inerrancy when it comes to this conversation. Cause it, it does, it's actually funny. Like when you explain it that way, which I'm glad I got to ask you, cause that was like the one section of the book I kept reading. And I was like, am I understanding? Am I like, am I missing this? But that's, that's really helpful explanation. It gets into the argument that I find myself having with King James only a lot, which is yes. to believe that you have the perfect word of God in the King James Bible. You have to believe in a double inspiration. Like you have yes. to believe that the translators were inspired, but your version of what you're saying, when you talk about inerrancy, you're almost believing that same thing, that whatever that specific translator, whether the ESV King James, like any modern version, they would have to be inspired in literally the notes that they're writing, the the separations of things. Okay. So I'm going to talk about this historically, because I always find it's an easier place to talk about things historically and people aren't so afraid. And I've never published on this, I've talked to some scholars. I talked to, I had an interesting conversation with Laman Sanahe before he died at a conference one time. And I asked him this question and I said, do you think that the way that, and I, I may get in a lot of trouble for this. I don't know. As I said, it's, it's historically, this has been fascinating to me because there is a shift in how Christians revere the Bible the shift really began to happen in the 19th and the 20th centuries. I do think a lot of it has to do with, with sort of German higher criticism, which where they really begin to, to take the Bible and apply, literally examine it in a way it never been examined before and begin to argue things like the Exodus probably never happened and all of this stuff. And that really terrified a lot of people. And I don't, I think the German higher critics, I think they got carried away. And I think they did, they did a lot of damage in some mm-hmm. of the ways that they implemented their ideas. I believe the Exodus happened. <laughs> it's, so there's, I think we have a lot of weight. We have a lot of new understanding about it, but nonetheless. So I think part of it was a reaction to that. I also think that with the end of, or I have an idea that I've never explored, but I did talk, I've talked with some scholars about this who know more about global Christianity. And it is interesting that as the Christian world became more and more in contact with, with other religions, like outside of Western Europe, you can think about Islam is um, an example of this. And in many ways, the ways that they regarded their text is more like it has to be, this is exactly the word of God, when you know the word of God, it came through, it has to be interpreted exactly this way. And it's a, we begin to see Christians beginning to apply those same standards to the Bible. And they, this had never been done this way before. As I said, ancient Christians, early church Christians, the Bible to them was indeed the Torah and, and the word of God. But if you look at the Old Testament, it often it changes. It says, this is the word of God. And then it gives us God's voice. But that's mostly not what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is mostly people telling the story of what God is doing and clearly inspired by God. But then occasionally we have these moments where God stops and says, you write this down exactly. Mm-hmm. And so we have a few of those places, but there, there's really not all that many. If you think about the whole of the Bible, we get the most with the prophets. So it's interesting. What we essentially have done as Christians is we have taken those parts where God says, this is what I'm saying. You write it down exactly. And we've said, okay, some of our modern translations in some ways have begun to regard the whole text the way that they've interpreted as this is exactly the word of God thing. And this rigidity in the text this way is 
dangerous. And my husband and I were in youth ministry for so many years. And the kids that were most likely to go to college and lose their faith were the kids who were so rigid, were grew up in households that were so rigid that if they, if you even introduce the idea that people like C.S. Lewis did not believe in literal creationism, it would rock their world. Mm -hmm. And they would suddenly think C.S. Lewis must have not believed in the Bible because, because the only people who really believe the Bible are the ones who have this very literal, as I said, understanding that it has to be interpreted, that the beginning of Genesis has to be interpreted. Instead of understanding its Hebrew poetry, understanding it has to be literally interpreted in this way. And if you don't believe it this way, then nothing in the Bible is true. Mm. And this is a fragile faith. Yeah. This is a fragile faith that is not built upon God and the miraculous things that God have done throughout history and sending Jesus to us. It is a faith built on human understanding and interpretation hmm. of the text. And it scares me because I think it, le it explains why so many of the younger generation, the people 10 years behind me and have walked away and we see this they're walking away and it's because their faith instead of being built on jesus was built on a fragile understanding of the bible well it, it goes back to that litmus test and i've been talking about that fragility of that the worldview for a long time like not even related to this but like your subtitle how the subjugation of women became gospel truth you could fill in that blank with so many things. Creationism right. became gospel yes. truth. How literal rapture became gospel truth. Yes, how, Pre we haven't you know, predis yeah dispensationalism. It, That's part of the story. Become this, and when you really think of the litmus test for a Christian, very narrow. The Bible says it's narrow, but like very narrow view of what what is the litmus test for whether you're a follower of who Christ oh. is. But we associate all these things, and the reality is like we can all be wrong on creationism or on all these different things. And there's room to people debate his, historical, poetic, what, it, you know, how do you interpret it? And I think that's one of the cool things about the Bible though, is that the gospel's so clear and there's yes. so much of it that's not clear that we get to spend the rest of our life studying and trying to see it, God through it. It, it um, doesn't hurt our faith. That's right. what I, I really loved Beth Moore. I've has given me so much hope over the past few years and she shocked me when I guess Monday or Tuesday, now it makes a lot more sense, but on Monday or Tuesday, she actually entered a Twitter thread <laughs> that yeah. I had started commenting on some attacks that were being made on Kristen Cobes Dumais, Jesus oh, yes, and John yes, Wayne. Yes. We really, and the thing that she jumped in and said is essentially she, she rebuked Denny Burke for not being willing to consider what other people have argued, just shutting your ears to not even considering other people's point of views. And she made this, I was looking to see if I could pull it up really fast, but I, I couldn't find it quickly. But she says, essentially, she says, we have become so fixated on tertiary issues that have nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. And that's what we've done with all of this. Women's roles in the churches, creationism, dispensationalism, these are all tertiary issues. Most of them have very, especially the way, like, complementarianism has both old roots and patriarchy, but very modern roots in what has happened to it now. But these are all very modern things. And we have linked our, our faith, our salvation to them. And that is dangerous. And that is what has led to all of these, you know, horrific things 
that have happened in the evangelical church because we have missed our faith. We are no longer, our faith is no longer tied to just Jesus. And that I think is what Beth Moore has been getting at. And since 2016, has been pushing. Um, this is what Kristen Cobes Dumay shows so well in Jesus and John Wayne, is that Christianity, this modern evangelicalism, is not about Jesus. It's about Southern culture and masculinity and really power. And, and so we've missed God's point. And which taken to the extreme can lead to all the abuses and things that I find myself dealing with constantly. Yes, uh, it's, yeah, it's crazy. And it's what's shocking to me with the Beth Moore situation is just how there's few people I can think of more traditional than Beth Moore. Yeah. Like she's not a far left crazy, like the caricature that now she's being portrayed as like she's nothing. She's not. She's, she's Beth Moore. I, I don't know. It's just, she's shocking just yeah, to me. you just, re- she's, I imagine, I can't even think about how much of the Bible Beth Moore can probably quote off the top of her head. It's crazy how grounded she is in the Bible. And it's just, yeah, it's it's been shocking seeing the response to her. But I, I know we're I know we're at the end of our time. There's a million other questions I've got written down that I would love to dive into. So hopefully someday there will be a part two to this because it's really it's been fascinating. Your book's been a, a game changer for me. And I think it I, I think I can credit your book and Amy Bird's book for making me drop the complementarian label. So that's but a lot of that has been literally the two of your books. Versus I've read many books about complementarianism from that side. And these two books have pushed me to scripture way more than any of the books I've read that do cherry pick a lot of these topics. And so I, I well, can say, I know there's people, compliment. Could say, there's people that could say, oh, you read the book and it made you, it convinced you, but your book, I had your book open. I literally took a picture the other day. I was going to post to my group, but I forgot because I always forget to post things, <laughs> but like pretty much all the way through reading the book, I had my Bible open under your book and was checking verses and passages. And it's, it pushed me to scripture. And I think scripture is very clear about where it stands. And so yes. it's just a, that is the biggest compliment I can give your book is that far more than books I've read by even my Grudem or Piper or by, or sermons I've heard from the Denny Burks of the world, like your book pushed me to really study it. And it's phenomenal. I, I want to just say this at the end. I just want to ask this question because you've written, I hope everybody picks up this book. And I say that with, I only have authors on the show who actually like their books, but I, I really <laughs> hope people pick up this book. I truly do mean that it's fantastic. You've covered so much ground in this. And I'm very curious to know if you could see one thing taken away, if you could see people pick up this book, Ignore the Twitter barrage of the people who have already decided what they think about it. If you could see people who will pick it up, read it earnestly, if you could see them walk away with one truth, what would you want that to be? Yeah, no, I joke that this book has the easiest thesis. And of course, I'm a historian, so thesis is the argument we make from evidence. And this one has the easiest thesis I've ever written. And it is simply that biblical womanhood, this modern understanding that women are uh, are divinely ordained to be under the authority of men that this is not biblical. That's what I want women and men to hear. And so I, and that you can believe, if I can make an addendum to that, that you can believe that women can teach, preach, and lead just like men without giving up your, without moving away from Christian orthodoxy, that you Mm -hmm. can be a faithful Christian 
and faithful to the Bible and faithful in your witness to Jesus. And you can even stay conservative without believing in male headship. Just for anybody listening, if, if you're probably, I, I would guess that most listening are probably in the same mindset I was at least when I first saw your book and Amy's book come out. And I, I only mentioned them together. One, I think they complement each other. I'm so glad um, you do. Yeah. But, but also it doing this podcast, starting to read this, the podcast has forced me to read a lot of the newer books that are coming out. And when I first saw them, it was with this hesitancy and going, what are they really going to say? Yes. What are they really going to push? And that's just honestly where I was coming at it from. And I was going like, here, I just was like, okay, smash the patriarchy kind of thing. Okay, <laughs> let's see. And, 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 and honestly, though, sincerely, if you're listening to this and you're rolling your eyes and you're feeling that same way, I picked up the book feeling the same way. And if you'll come into it open and you'll come into it, literally fact check it with the Bible next to it. Read what does your faith actually teach? I, I think you'll see that there is, it's your book pushes people back to that. Like it's pushing people back to being biblical, so not to a certain period of church history. And so, yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about it. And I hope everybody picks up a copy and very much hope this is not the last time that we talk because oh, got that would be great. Yes. <laughs> we'll have to talk more about, I'm so glad that you had me on because of your audience and the focus of your topic, because in many ways, these problems that we see in the modern church mm. and the abuse, it a lot of it is connected to these readings of the Bible and people just can't deny that anymore. So mm. it's time that we, we address it. Thank you so much for coming on and Thank I hope you, you have a great Europe trip and avoid the Twitter. <laughs> the Twitter <laughs> I things. hope so too. That sounds so. good. Okay. I'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.